0: Welcome to
1: Strange New Work, a series from What Works about how speculative fiction can help us imagine radically different ways of working and doing business. I'm your host, Tara McMullen. Today's work exists within narrow slices of time. Corporations are always looking toward the next quarterly report or earnings call. Teams work in sprints to stay agile and responsive to changing business needs. Attorneys track their time to the 10th of an hour. Delivery drivers speed from one gig to the next. Productivity tracking software allows managers to surveil their team members to make sure every minute is being used efficiently. But let's be real, good things take time, and generally, lots of it. In Annalee Newitz's novel, The Terraformers, we get a glimpse of how a massive timescale can alter work and its priorities. The Terraformers takes place over a thousand years, more than 50,000 years in the future. The story itself is divided into three parts and details different crises in the development of a planet being terraformed and sold off by a private corporation named Verdance. Terraforming is a process common to speculative fiction that involves making a usually unoccupied planet into a more Earth-like environment that can sustain human life. The planet in the Terraformers is called SASC-E. It's privately owned by Verdance, but the project manager decided to invite the Environmental Rescue Team to participate in the project. The Environmental Rescue Team, or ERT, is a sort of ecological watchdog group. They're tasked with ensuring that the terraformed planet and its inhabitants stay in balance as the process unfolds. Throughout the first third of the story, we get gems from the ERT handbook, such as A successful community requires thoughtful participation, hard work, and a healthy appreciation for the absurd. As well as When in doubt, don't kill anyone. The humans in the Terraformers are decanted as the property of the corporation, and live for hundreds of years. The main character in part one, Destry, has been around long enough to see the planet change around her. Over the course of the novel, we see Sask-E evolve. We also see social and political evolution among the human and non-human people who live on the planet. For instance, in part two, we meet a team of four workers, two human and two non-human people. These workers are tasked with finalizing plans for a big project, a continent-wide public transit system. They need to secure approval from various city leaders, get production started on vehicles for said transit systems, and conduct an environmental impact analysis for all of it. And their time frame? Well, it's just two months. One of the workers Named Sulfur, is incredulous at these tasks and their deadlines. They say, I don't care how fast you are, there's no way to do all that unless you're going to dedicate more people to it. There's explicit tension between the profit motives of Verdance, the corporation that owns the planet, and the planetary motives shared by the workers. Profit needs work done fast, but planets well, they exist on their own time, even terraformed ones. Without spoiling too much, the story of the transit system culminates with some light political subterfuge to circumvent the half measures that served corporate profit. Verdence's preferred system would have met short-term needs but deteriorated quickly. The system the workers come up with takes long-term needs into account. Ultimately, they achieve the goal of a socially and ecologically just transit system. In an episode of Our Opinions Are Correct, the podcast that knew its whole In an episode of Our Opinions Are Correct, the podcast that Newitz co-hosts with fellow author Charlie Jean Anders, Newitz explains that it was important for them to foreground labor in the terraformers.
2: And I really wanted to foreground labor, you know, the labor of maintaining a planet or building a planet. This is the kind of stuff that we don't normally see in a terraforming story. I think that's because We don't normally think about it even here on Earth. You know, we don't think about the people very often who maintain our streets, Mm -hmm. who grow and pick our food, who are building our houses, painting our houses, building freeways, driving buses, like all of the people who actually make everything run. You know, those people are kind of terraformers. You know, they're the ones who make sure that you don't fall into a pothole and that your forest doesn't burn down and consume your house. And so those are the terraformers in my novel, those, those people. And part of what this book is about is a very long revolution against property owners. Takes a long time. Ecological justice is, of course,
1: a key theme in the terraformers. But so is social justice. After all, those two ideas of justice are inextricably intertwined. As the novel's 1,000-year trajectory plays out, more and more life forms are recognized as people and welcomed into the social fabric of the world. There are all different forms of humans and animals, but also a fleet of sentient drilling vehicles, colonies of earthworms, and autonomous, intelligent, flying trains. Social justice takes time, too. Even when it feels like an emergency,
0: if I could solve racism by the end of day, of course I'd do that. Sure, great. Let's check them all off the list before the end of the week. You know what I mean? That'd be great. But this is a this is a lifelong thing. That's Jordan Maney. Jordan is a coach
1: for, as she calls her clients bleeding hearts. These are people who care
0: and care deeply. These are people who care personally and professionally a lot. There's a lot of emotional labor in their life. Sometimes I jokingly call it the older sister ministry because that's who the majority of my clients are. But um, what really happened was um, self-observation and this observation seeing this pattern with clients where there's this urgency of, oh my God, we got to figure this out. I just found out this terrifying thing. We got to figure this out today. Like everybody get on Zoom. Let's brainstorm. Let's end racism tonight. <laughs> like, you know, let's, let's like figure it out right this second. And I would see this happen again and again with clients. That rush to action,
1: that urgent push to do something, anything, right now, uh, that's not a new phenomenon. Caring people have been rushing in to right wrongs and resist injustice since, well, forever. Forever. There are emergencies, but there are also emergency responders, people whose job it is to stop the bleeding, protect the vulnerable, or respond to immediate threats. But emergencies inevitably give way to long-term work and recovery. If we're not emergency responders, and most of us aren't, then we need to be prepared to care for and maintain change over the long haul. Now, I'm mostly talking about big social, political, and cultural issues here. But this absolutely applies on a much smaller scale, too, including in our daily work. Most work benefits from more time. While there may, and I stress may, be times that call for moving fast and breaking things, remarkable work moves slowly. And it does so not only because you need time to do remarkable work, but because remarkable work requires the worker to be rested and well-nourished, figuratively and literally. When our deep care meets with the constant press of urgency, Jordan says we get caught in what she calls the chronic care cycle. Can you kind of walk me through the, the chronic care cycle? What happens in each phase?
0: Yeah. So I have four phases. There's awareness, illumination, response, and then despair. So awareness kind of speaks for itself. You find out about something that's usually painful, usually incendiary, something that creates that sense of like urgent urgency in your nervous system. Um, that you want to act on because your empathy is just boundless and you want to do something about the fact that people are in pain. Mm -hmm. Illumination comes through when you communicate what you're now aware of. Maybe it's a one-to-one conversation, maybe it's a post on social, maybe it's um, a panel or forum, what have you, but like you're making other people aware as well so like the first point is like self-awareness and illumination is usually like some type of collective awareness or uh, group awareness and then after is where you have this response usually you are waiting for a response from other people that's also like well yeah we need to do something about this let's all like come on let's let's go let's let's rally together or you're waiting for some type of response that makes you feel like your nervous system can calm down. Mm -hmm. I just told everybody about this. Aren't you scared too? Aren't you like ready to act right now as well? Right, right? I'm not the only person that feels this way, right? Like there's a sense of like a need for validation in that response. And then what usually happens is when we don't get the response that we want, from other people and we don't get that signal that our nervous system can calm down. We just kind of plummet into despair. And that is a very, I don't want to say dangerous, but that's a really critical stage because you can just stay there, right? You can just stay in there. Um, I'm a annoyingly relentless optimist. And so I'm keenly aware of when I'm in despair and when I'm like, okay, we're going to sit with this for a little bit, but we can't spiral down into that because Mm -hmm. no action is really going to come. No productive action is really going to come from this. Uh, But it's really, it's such an easy cycle to get into when you're like, oh my God, I'm aware of something new. I need to tell everybody, wait, nobody else seems to be just me. Okay, cool. Cool. So that's just, these people just died or this, this hate crime just happened or whatever this like, this painful event was, there's nothing? Cool, we're not gonna change anything? Great, we're just gonna all pretend it away in a seven day news cycle? Cool, 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 cool. You can stay there and it's very exhausting and you can burn yourself out because your nervous system isn't getting any real relief. It's just kind of like, it's just staying in that really like clenched kind of
1: tight space. The chronic care cycle doesn't only occur around big issues or collective trauma. You can find yourself caught in the cycle responding to things in your own work or business. And by you, I mean me.
0: I can find myself caught in the cycle. You still get to that point of like waiting for that response, waiting for that relief. And then when nothing happens, that that despair can really calcify into pessimism, into skepticism, into distress, into uh, resentment, which is, I hate that word, I really I really hate it, I hate that feeling, it's just not fun. The solution to a lot of the things that we're needing we're desperately and not saying is leaning forward towards one another, is reaching out towards one another. And sometimes when you see that on a smaller level, where that despair just calcifies. Mm-hmm. It makes you less and less um, desiring of reaching out towards other people, of building in that sense of community, of talking, of being open, of being vulnerable. So I definitely think it, it's very similar for when it's not some big collective thing, but it might be intimate, it might be even more painful because y- you really, you really feel it in a way that you... Um, wouldn't if it's just like, oh, I just read this in the news and your empathy hits on that. But when it's like up close and personal, it can it can be even sharper. So what's a bleeding heart to do? Change the focus. My friends who are organizers who I just admire, one of them who I'm sure will soon be a president or chief of staff to a president, Wani Torres. I love that woman so much. She said this and it just, I come back to it whenever I am in that, I, whenever I feel myself dipping into that despair. When they go low, we go local. Change oh. your focus, right? Isn't it good? She's just, she's so good. Change your focus because there are a lot of things that I can impact on a local stage that I cannot on a global one.
1: When they go low, we go local. This brings the Terraformers back to mind for me. Part of the world that Newitz created is this hyper-capitalist approach to planetary exploration and expansion. Remember that SASC-E is owned by Verdance. Everything on the planet is the corporation's property, including the people. One might imagine a novel that tells the story of a great uprising, a rebellion against evil corporate overlords that changes the whole galaxy. But that's not the novel Newitz wrote. The ERT Rangers and many others on the ground don't like their relationship to Verdance. They don't like the market-oriented decisions that get made about ecological development. But the story is really about these local inflection points where real change can be affected. Sure, local in this case is at planetary scale. Nonetheless, the story's characters are working slowly and methodically to make life better for the people, human and non-human alike, who share the same air they do. We can use this same go-local shift in focus at work, and in business, too. Most people don't have the power to directly influence the trajectory of their industry or even their organization. But frontline workers, managers, and small business owners all have a sphere of influence they can focus on making better for themselves and for those around them. You can't change the way capital flows through social media companies or the moderation standards that platforms use or don't use. But you can make decisions about how or if you'll use social media. You can't change the way the market values or doesn't value certain kinds of work. But you can choose to pay people who do that work more and openly acknowledge the value of that work. You probably can't change the way your large corporate employer trains new hires— but you can take some extra time to mentor and develop newer members of your team. Along with going local, it's critical to realize that you don't have to be in charge of making change happen. Lots of people and organizations are already doing the work. That's not to say that new issues don't come up and new needs don't need to be filled, but 99% of the time, There is an existing movement for change that you can plug into. I
0: think the biggest shift in order to really make some impactful action is to shift away from, I have to do this by myself. Like on your own, you could probably do something pretty cool for a short amount of time. But at some point, you really have to tie into community and not just business owners, not just people that you collaborate with that's great and that is a part of your community but I mean like just show up to a city council meeting you got to know who your local activists are so I think that the main action is really tying yourself back into the fabric of the community because there you can see where do you need me versus saying like hey I'm going to start a new social advocacy group for bleeding hard business owners in the local area sure, do the meetup, right? But maybe the meetup is, here are the organizations we've already identified who are doing the work that we care about. We're just going to ask them what they need. You don't have to be the one leading the front. Sometimes it's okay to say like, hey, I noticed that this organization has literally three people who are running it, and they're really tired. Maybe we assist them in a project. Maybe I'm a PR person, so maybe I give them talking points or help them build a press release for an event that they have. Whatever it is that your skill set is, really trying to focus on what it is that you do well, kind of organically. Mm-hmm. And then asking like, Hey, can I help? Is there anything that I can, I can give you? Is there anything that I can do to support you versus trying to kind of like take everything at the helm and like, I've got this. You don't, <laughs> you don't. I'm sorry. Lovingly, you don't, and that's okay. We shouldn't want martyrs. And I don't think that this cycle of progress and advocacy is calling for that. I think it's really calling for us to be hyper-connected to one another um, and interdependent in a way that we haven't been. So if you're looking for an action, look at who's already doing this work and show up. Having identified the chronic care cycle, Jordan proposes
1: that we let it evolve. We can crack open the cycle at the point of
0: illumination, get some perspective, and make a strategy for care. So instead of going into despair, you go into perspective. And from perspective, strategy and impact. Let's make a strategy of care. Let's make a strategy of advocacy that's sustainable. Not like I'm going to overhaul my business and only do this. I'm not going to have friendships anymore. I'm going to go live in a forest and eat peas or whatever until like, you know, because it's very all or nothing. Our approach to a lot of this has been very all or nothing and very led by urgency. And it's like, no, you need to go get some perspective and you need to operate at a place where your endless empathy meets the very limitations of your capacity right your your generosity your care your empathy has got to meet your capacity because the more you try and make your empathy your generosity say is saying yes to things it's like oh i gotta go do this i gotta go do this but then your impact usually sucks Or you fall short and you burn out, um, because you're, you're, you're not being reminded of your capacity. So get that perspective so you can create something, a strategy that's sustainable. Maybe it's finding one organization in your local area that quarterly you're going to sit down with their board or you're going to sit down with a couple activists and you're giving them food or you are pouring into a mutual aid fund or you are volunteering some type of service or something that's really natural and organic and generative for you to give to them, something that's sustainable. And you might be hearing that and say, that's not enough. Again, perspective. Over time, if you did that for five years, if you know like activists who are really out here putting their life on the line and you really wanna be supportive, go feed them, pay a bill, <laughs> like, go help that way that's available to you as well so that you can have that like sustainability in your strategy so you can make the impact that you want it's like it's really these small things and the older i get the more i like to research the civil rights era but not look Mm -hmm. like not look at the the faces of the movement but really the hands and feet and there are Mm -hmm. so many people behind the faces that contribute and come up with strategy and come up with ideas and give and like you need to talk about that more and be I think also maybe it's an ego thing. Be willing not to be the face. Be willing to like be okay with like not getting credit or saving the world or whatever. Be willing to be the person who like go get the face food. <laughs> like that's okay. T- you know what I mean? That's okay too. Yeah. Right? That's not really care. That's something else. Yeah, I think just shifting your perspective is really like the biggest point of it.
1: Think for a moment about whatever project you're working on right now. Maybe you're putting together a big report for a client, or you're preparing to run a workshop at the company retreat, or you're overhauling your website. What's your deadline on this project? When are you supposed to have it done by? Got it? All right. Now imagine you had twice that long, even three times that long. How would the work change? Sure, the pace would probably slow down, but what changes would you make to the project itself? What would you do better or more thoroughly? Who else would you involve? What parts of the process might you linger on? In Beloved Economies, co-authors Joanna C. and Jess Remington lay out seven practices that make work better. One of those practices is trust, there is
3: time. Here's Joanna C to explain. So initially, but we were several years into the research and we only had five practices. There were two more that we got that we kind of surfaced together as we Followed folks over more time and and understood more deeply what was happening. And that the two practices that were the last to come into view, if you will, are trust there is time and reckon with history. And trust there is time was the last one that we saw. That it's actually my favorite of the practice chapters in the book, (laughs) if I had to pick one, but I just love how it came together. And um, it's the hardest, man. That boy is that practice hard. Like, how do we trust there is time when, you know, as we say in there, we're in this context right now where we're all, like, starving for enough time. And especially folks who are working multiple jobs who have very, very real consequences if you don't make deadlines. So that chapter grapples with how do we honor the very real urgency that so many of us are dealing with while at the same time rejecting the generalized sense of urgency that the current loveless economy tends to just imbue in all of us. In Beloved Economies, Joanna and Jess point to three ways
1: to practice trusting that there is time. These aren't the only ways to put your trust in enough time, but they are a few good places to start. The first is honoring people's time constraints and real urgency. Trusting that there's enough time doesn't mean monopolizing other people's time or downplaying the urgency they feel. Everyone has different demands on their time and feels the insistence of their needs in unique ways. The second is pointing out that varied approaches to time exist. The kind of timekeeping that prioritize productivity and efficiency is only one quite limited way of understanding time. Outside of capitalism-controlled spaces, we all experience the malleability of time. We experience embodied time, or seasonal time, rather than clock time. And the third way to trust there is time is prioritizing the fundamentals. In this case, the fundamentals are all the things we wish were part of work or business, but never seem to have time for. Nurturing collaborative relationships listening to stakeholders, sharing decision-making power. Prioritizing the fundamentals means including these components of the work on the timeline as necessities. They're not nice-to-haves. They're essential. We can trust that there's time if we insist that we make time
3: for doing things well. When we trust that we can put the time and care into working in ways that do prioritize relationship, that reckon with history, that source from multiple ways of knowing, Um, our teams and groups often end up being surprised by where we get to and how fast we got there.
1: In Octavia Butler's pair of novels, The Parable of the Sower and The Parable of the Talents, The theme is engaging with change. The parable of the sower starts with these words from the newly forming religion of Earthseed. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Part of the teaching of Earthseed is that we can shape change, key to shaping change, is recognizing that every action or non-action results in something. By thinking beyond our next action to consider the change we might catalyze, we can intentionally shape change, and with it, the future. Earthseed advises, to get along with God, consider the consequences of your behavior. Urgency makes it impossible to consider the consequences of our behavior. Those unforeseen consequences end up causing more urgency. Considering consequences requires wrestling with time. Few actions have truly immediate consequences. But over time, consequences may not make themselves known for a year, a decade, or even a century or more. Which is not to say that we can't consider the potential consequences of our actions. Octavia Butler gives us this more direct guidance on thinking about the future. She says, quote, because making predictions is one way to give warning when we see ourselves drifting in dangerous directions. Because prediction is a useful way of pointing out safer, wiser courses. Because most of all, Our tomorrow is the child of our today. Now, when it comes to work and business today, we're living the consequences of policy and business decisions made in the 1970s and 80s. If we make similar or worse decisions today, we can be assured that the consequences 40 years from now will be the same or worse. Today, I can choose to do what future me will thank today me for. I can look beyond the particular circumstances of the present to consider the consequences of any choice I may make. I can think long-term to direct my life, business, or community toward balance, justice, and care. Huge thanks to Jordan Maney and Joanna C for sharing their work with me for this episode. Find links to all their work in the show notes. Next week, I'll be looking at belonging as a habit for work with Charlie Gilkey and considering how indigenous futurism, imperial space opera, and solar punk can shed light on the best and worst practices of belonging at work. Every episode of What Works is also published in essay form in my newsletter. Subscribe at whatworks.fyi, where you can also chip in $7 per month to support my work, get premium content, and discounts to workshops. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a podcast production agency for people changing the way we think about culture, creativity, leadership, and work. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer, and Sean McMullen is our fearless leader and executive producer. What Works is produced on stolen land. We're grateful to the Susquehannock and Conestogo peoples who stewarded this land for thousands of years before the arrival of white colonists. The Yellow House is on the unceded land of the Kutanaha Nation and the tribes of the Salish and Kalispell.